Hi, this is Harry Shearer, and you are listening to TV Confidential, a radio show about television. Ed Robertson, welcoming you back to TV Confidential, radio talk show about television. We'll play more of our final conversation with Ron Bacon. Ron Bacon, Emmy Award-winning associate director, one of the true pioneers of network TV production. Ron's career in television spanned roughly four decades, including about 35 years with ABC Television, where he worked behind the scenes of just about every kind of programming imaginable, including many kinds of live programming. Ron Bacon passed away Tuesday, December 21st at the age of 91. This conversation was recorded in the fall of 2021, and Ron and I are talking about his very rich and storied career as an artist, uh, which, which spans the world of music television, musical theater, Ron Bacon, a man of many, many talents. You can learn more about Ron, ronbacon.net. You can enjoy Ron's musical comedy, The Chicken Man, for free at ronbacon.net. We talked a little bit about the uh, music variety show that you hosted on WMAN, and it, it made me think of one of the other shows you worked on, on ABC, which was Shindig, and even though Shindig, uh, for those who remember, was one of those rock and roll musical shows that were very popular in the 60s and 70s, as, as I remember, Shindig, as originally conceived, was supposed to be a lot different. Yeah, well, I worked a pilot of Shindig, and the way that they did it was it was a, a country music show. Yeah. Country western music with go-go dancers. Go-go dancers, but <laughs> there was this guy England who was one of the guests who I don't know he wasn't country. I I couldn't figure it out, but it was uh, Jack Good was the producer, mm-hmm. and Jack Good was a guy who liked to put different things together, things that didn't fit. I mean, he extraordinarily creative man, and and he just thought that go-go dancers and country music might be the answer. Well, the show wasn't going to go anywhere, and ABC decided not to use it. And uh, so the uh, announcer, Jimmy O'Neill, was in New York, and uh, he was looking for an announcing job. He had, he had done the, the announcing on, on Shindig. And so he, he uh, asked the producer if he could use a, a copy of the pilot to get a job as a radio announcer so people would see him doing his thing. So Jack Good said, sure, you know, that's fine, no problem. And so Jimmy took the pilot to New York, and uh, the producers looked at it to see whether he was a good announcer. And they said, my God, this is a great show. <laughs> but it has to be rock and roll, not not country music. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a lot of times... The pilot may start off as one thing, and by the time it goes to series, if it goes to series, the concept may be completely different or or considerably different than it was when it was originally uh, launched off the ground. I have a lot more to say about that because one of the things I learned about it, the process, even though you have a great idea, and even though everybody's agreed on what it should be, you have to get sponsors. Mm-hmm. And the sponsor may say, well, I don't like this kind of music. <laughs> you know? 
will insist on some modification in the program about who does it or, or anything. Yeah, and back then, back then in the 60s, I mean, sponsors have always had a lot of say over the content of of television shows, but back then we were still in the era of, you know, primary sponsors who would, they would, their ads would run maybe not the entire hour or half an hour, but they would sponsor the first 20 minutes of Shindig. And so they want to make sure that if they're going to, if, if, uh, if Dippity Doo is going to sponsor the first 15 minutes of, of Shindig this season, uh, they they want to make sure that the concept and the music fits something that they want to do. Ultimately, they wielded great power, the mm-hmm. sponsors. And I could go back to that with the, uh, the sponsors of many different shows I worked on. That, and they, they, did, they certainly had a, a, exercised a lot of power over the content, which was helpful at times, but at other times it was not good because these people would go nuts. Uh, on stuff that didn't make sense. Uh, I remember it was, especially in the early days, it was so very clear about the power that the, the sponsor had. I mean, just, they had people assigned to do the show that were there and on present on your set. I don't like the, the set, or I don't like the lighting, or I don't like the, the person that's on it, or I don't like the music, or I don't like... And you just had to cave into it. it was, uh, that was the creative process. Now, I, I don't know that it was always that bad. I, I, if there was somebody who was making good judgments, that's fine, you know. But uh, this is the dilemma I think that still exists to, to agree because the pharmaceutical industry has certainly taken over everything. Yeah. You know? No, it's and it, it, it's on a different level right now because you have something called product integration where the product that the sponsor produces is weaved into the content of the show, you know, right. uh, as a different way of marketing the product or service. That blurs a fine line between the creative process and the commercial, the business process. But it, it, it's another example of the influence that sponsors have always had on the medium one way or another. Well, it's always been, you know, if you're a producer and you're trying to put together a show, and uh, you know, one of the one of the advertisers, let's say, is uh, is a drugstore, they say, well, we would like to participate on your show, but we we need to be somehow part of it. So there would be a set with that drugstore in it, and I'd be sure it's well photographed, mm-hmm. you know. So the name of the drugstore would come up. And, uh, I, I mean, I, in the old movies, my gosh, there was an awful lot of smoking. Why? Well, there were tobacco companies had a huge amount of input into that. They would donate money to help the producers mm-hmm. run these uh, movies, you know. And uh, it was necessary for actors to smoke. Yeah. And then there was a, the, the question of drinking, you know. There would be certain kind of <laughs> brandy or something would show up it's just it was it, it went on that way always it's a very de- it has always been a very delicate dance between commerce and creativity yeah well that's it i mean but it doesn't always work i i <laughs> some shows some movies have cost millions and millions and millions. i mean 35 million dollars <laughs> 
Bonfire of the Vanities, <laughs> $35 million they lost. Yeah. You know, and how many people were involved in that? I mean, my goodness. <laughs> it cost a lot. Of, I had a, I, one of my closest friends was a, was a lawyer who, this was extraordinary that we met this guy. <laughs> one of the first people we met when, my, when we were first married was a, a guy who was a uh, had been a soldier in in uh, Korea and uh, had, had just gotten out of the service. My wife met his his wife at a uh, at the doctor's office at the OB office, and um, we got to be close friends. Well, he had a degree as a lawyer; he had studied law in college, but he had had no real experience because he had to go to the service. So he got out, when he got out of the service, he was a qualified lawyer. His father was a very successful lawyer whose office building was on the corner of Sunset and Vine, probably the most important intersection in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And he was on the top floor, and he owned the whole darn building. And he did for the motion picture industry, and he got 1% of every motion picture that was ever made. So his son, who becomes our very close friend, suddenly has to take over the entire business. His father dies. And he's he's in his 20s. <laughs> and he's got this immense thing. <laughs> well, that was a nice visit to the <laughs> my wife. I'll tell you that. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't hurt. <laughs> but I, I, I mentioned him because he, he often talked about some of the things that happened. I mean, he, he represented so many famous people you can't even begin to know it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just astonishing. And he would talk about. The whole thing, and he'd say, well, I don't understand why anybody ever tried to make a motion picture, because most of them lose money. I didn't know that. It's very rare to make money, but people still do it. Well, because people still do it, because if everything coalesces, that investment can multiply by a hundredfold. And, and because you because you never know what the public is going to respond to. You never know when, and sometimes this goes back to what we're talking about before, you know, about the wonder of life. Things may change and the time may be exactly right for this particular movie that you're about to release. And so everything kind of coalesces and it becomes a big, big success. And and sometimes you put all the money and the effort and the talent into putting something together and you release it and you don't get the audience reaction to it. And it has nothing to do whether with with whether the show is good or bad or not. It's just it didn't get the reaction. Sometimes it takes a while for for something to find its audience. Yeah, it, it, I remember we did a show on television. This would be very small example of the same thing, but it was called the Super. It was a, it was with Richard Castellano. The purpose of it was just to be a, just a demo to, to try to do this show. 
And but but uh, Castellano insisted on his daughter being in the on the cast. And we should we should say that Richard Castellano was hot at the time because this was this was within a year or two of The Godfather, and Richard Castellano got a lot of generated a lot of buzz because of his performance in The Godfather, and so he was striking while the iron was hot and exerting his influence when he could because he knew he was hot. Now, it was a big deal, you know, but the thing was that the producers and the director didn't want that, his daughter. Mm-hmm. They didn't, she was good enough for the part. And, I mean, it became a really big deal, and it was ugly. It was, I, it was unfortunate. Uh, the show did manage, I think, to do, did they get on the air with that thing? I don't um, know. I remember it ran in the summer of 73 or 74. I remember watching it when I was a kid. In fact, <laughs> this, 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 probably says, this probably says more about me and where my mind goes. I can hear the theme song in my head as we're talking right now, Ron. So uh, it was uh, Rob Reiner. Yeah, it was. It, it was. It was Rob. Rob Reiner produced the show because Rob I, Reiner was taking advantage of his hotness on because of All in the Family. It goes back to that delicate dance between creativity and commerce in that you may have a decision imposed on you as an artist. You know, you may be told, okay, you must cast this person. And even though you may not feel this person is the right performer for this part, as a practical well, reality, you know, somehow you got to do it. You know? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes you just have to do it, and you you do the best you can with the parts you're given, and hopefully it all comes together. Something against the little girl. I mean, she she was doing the best she knew how, but she just simply wasn't wasn't right for the part. Yeah, know? yeah. But again, that's just one of those. There is a lot of compromising that goes on in the creative process sometimes. In nepotism, we can talk about that a lot. That's, well, yeah. Well, yeah, we've had many conversations about nepotism. Nepotism, nepotism will get your foot in the door, but at the end of the day, your talent is going to make the difference as to whether you go anywhere. And, you know, I was an outsider when I broke into the industry, but my son got some help, in a sense, from me, you know, a couple pushes once in a while. Yeah, and, and like I say, it, it's okay to do that initial push, but at the end of the day, his, his career depends on his ability to deliver. Exactly, and my son did deliver. You yeah. Know, he, was, he had a tremendous influence on a lot of people, and he's still, right now, as I say, he's working at Fairmont, So You're listening to a conversation with Ron Bacon that was recorded in the fall of 2021. Ron Bacon, Emmy Award-winning associate director, and one of the true pioneers of network TV production. Ron Bacon passed away Tuesday, December 21st at the age of 91. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. We've only scratched the surface of Ron's career. As I said, there are many other types of genre and programming and stories that that we have not asked Ron about. But we've talked about some of the great musical artists that you have crossed paths with throughout your career and every now and then some of them you more than cross paths with you become close dear friends they become a part of your life and one of those artists who became a part of your life was little richard 
Yeah, little Richard uh, actually married my daughter. <laughs> well, he he performed the ceremony that married your daughter. <laughs> oh, he actually. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. He, Rich, little Richard was an ordained minister. He performed the ceremony for Ron for the marriage of Ron's daughter. I should make this clear. Yes. Very drummer. <laughs> <laughs> but as a result of it, we became very close, and I had I also worked with little Richard a lot of times. Yeah, I think I think you worked with them on either Shindig or Hollywood Palace or both. Uh, probably both uh, Shindig in particular. And Ron will share a few stories about working with Little Richard when we play more of our conversation with Ron Bacon at the end of our second hour. Ron Bacon passed away Tuesday, December 21st at the age of 91. This conversation that you've been listening to was recorded in the fall of 2021. We'll take a quick time out. Then Steve Beverly will join us as we pay tribute to legendary NFL broadcaster and Hall of Fame NFL coach John Madden. We come back on TV Confidential. One more item, if you love Ella Fitzgerald, our friend Jeffrey Mark celebrates the music of the First Lady of Song every week on Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella. You can hear Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you find podcasts. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk tvconfidential.net talk at tvconfidential.net you can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential x.com forward slash tvconfidential or at tvconfidential on instagram and if you're listening to us on the tv confidential podcast please be sure to hit the subscribe button This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.